Dionysian Revival, Reflections on the Bacchae by Euripides, and William Golding's Lord of the Flies by Gil Bailey, produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 4. Cesario Bandera is a friend of mine who's just written a book about the development of literary things in the Western world called The Sacred Game, and it's very good, and he talks about a lot of things that are relevant to our discussion here. And in one place he says, quote, In a sacrificial crisis, bad sacrifices, strange ones that are not permitted in more peaceful times, appear on the scene to the scandalized horror of respectable citizens, who in turn blame such devious practices for what is happening. In other words, these things, they're spontaneous, like this spontaneous ritual event that I just described on the island, where suddenly the boys are up and they're dancing and they're doing this sacrificial ritual. They don't even know they're doing it. They don't even know where it came from, except certain social and psychological forces have gravitated in that direction. And then they're part of it, and they don't even realize they're part of it. Now, some people will have seen that, will have understood it. Nietzsche, for example, understood it in some perverse way and others as well. But for the most part, the rest of us get caught up in it without even seeing it, and then suddenly those who see it react to it, and as Cesario says, we tend to say this is the cause of the problem. We don't realize it's the symptom of the problem. It's also the cause because it has mimetic effects. It, it continues the cultural deterioration. It exacerbates the culture, but it's not the cause of the cultural deterioration. So I wanted to refer to two of these. But first I had to make a confession. Has, because I'm going to critique the 60s, and since I was such a part of the 60s, I have to say something about it. I stumbled through the 60s as an East Tennessee hillbilly with a law degree, and far more importantly, 12 years tutelage at the hands of the Sisters of Mercy under my belt. I fell into all the craziness, but by the grace of God I fell through it like some hippie version of Forrest Gump, trying to master the theory and practice of Gandhian nonviolence. When I look back on it, I identify with the airhead college kid who jumps up in some grade B movie in Hollywood, jumps up on the table in the middle of the crisis and who says, hey kids, I've got it. I figured out how we can save the college and still have the prom. <laughs> and when I think back on my years in the 60s, that's, that was sort of my, that was sort of my, my attitude about it. I want to talk about music. I have three, and only three, memorable musical experiences from those years. The first is the Big Sur Folk Festival in 1969, which was marvelous, and I have nothing but wonderful memories of it. Joan Baez singing a cappella with the ocean behind her and the sun going down. The second was that my friends from the Institute for the Study of Nonviolence, who were exasperated by the fact that I showed so little interest in music, literally kidnapped me, put a blanket over me, drove me around, led me into the Fillmore with the blanket over my head, and only took the blanket off after we were safely inside for some rock concert, about which I remember nothing except it was very loud. And the third musical experience was that I went to the Altamont concert and sat about a quarter of a mile away from the stage where the Grateful Dead, surrounded by thugs from the Hell's Angels, who would later that day kill an 18-year-old boy, play music 
which I later realized was the soundtrack for precisely that kind of killing. That's my 1960s confession. My penance is to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Woodstock by scrutinizing word by word Euripides, the Bakke, and Golding's Lord of the Fly. I thought of that country music song which says, Mama, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboy. <laughs> well, Cesario Bandera says, these strange sacrificial manifestations are a complete scandal to those not caught up in them. And those not caught up in them tend to say, this is the cause of the problem. In some ways they're right, but it's also, it's more appropriate to see them as symptoms of the problem. Spontaneous manifestations of the crisis. And I want to share with you two of them. Michael Jones has written a book on the history of modern music. And we started today with Berlin, in, uh, 1931 Berlin, the cabaret. This is a story from the Berlin in the 1960s with a Rolling Stones concert there. And so I'm going to read to you, this is quotes within quotes, but here it is. Anita Pollenberg, former Stones groupie, remembers the madness, quote-unquote, that emanated from a Stones concert she witnessed in Berlin as the performance became absorbed into the emotions the performers evoked. Suddenly, the emotion the musicians called forth threatened their lives. This is Anita Pollenberg herself talking. She was there with the, with the Stones. The music was very rebellious that night, very wild, and the atmosphere was really charged up. I was watching from backstage. Mick was doing his sexy number, and the girls were throwing their panties on stage. Then, quite suddenly, it all began to turn ugly. That's very funny, don't you think? Now, there was a time, there was a time when one would have thought that it was turning ugly when the panties started hitting the stage, but she, it was only a little bit later. <laughs> That's very funny. Anyway, um, and so it all began to turn ugly. And the stones all dropped their instruments and ran. To get back to the hotel, we had to go through the underground concrete bunkers connected by tunnels where Hitler and his staff had operated during the war. That was my introduction to the Stones, escaping that mad mob of wild teenagers by running through Hitler's bunker. Need I say more? The dilemma they faced is precisely the dilemma we face without Christianity. And Nietzsche knew it. Okay, continuing to quote from Michael Jones' study. In an eerie replication of the rites in which the god was torn to pieces by his crazed followers, namely the Baki, rock concerts were becoming increasingly frenzied and increasingly dangerous to the fans and the performers alike. In Zurich, Mick Jagger was pulled from a 20-foot platform and, quote, almost torn to pieces, end quote. One musician remembers seeing fan after fan being injured during the concert and then barely escaping with his life after the concert was over. This is one of the Stones musicians. Quote, We finally managed to drive a short distance to a helicopter that was waiting, and as we got off the ground, we watched the kids attack the car like it was some enemy from outer space and tear it to pieces. I mean, they tore off fenders, the hood, the doors, the trunk, the wheels. It looked like giant beetles devouring a corpse from where we were in the air. Finally, Marianne Faithful, who was Mick Jagger's girlfriend during the 60s, 
describes his frame of mind at moments like that when the when in a concert where it was really frenzied. She says, quote, quoting her, he was very violent. He was like somebody possessed. I don't think he even knew who I was. He still had his makeup on, and there was a froth of spittle around his lips. His eyes were violent. He was making sounds, guttural sounds, and he was completely unintelligible. He was a berserk stranger. Okay. I have one. This is for mature audiences only, but we have to do it. This We're here to swallow hard and, and uh, assess these things. There are two questions. First of all, do these things, Cesario says, look, don't mistake them for the cause. They are the cause in the sense that they spread the disease, but they're not the cause in the sense that it didn't start with them. It's been something that's been underway for a long time, and it's just now revealing its sacrificiality. But it's been underway for a long time. Nietzsche was the first one to thematize it, uh, but it's been underway for a long, long time. The question is, can it be stopped, and where is it headed? So the first is, where is it headed? And again, it's a newspaper story, New York Times. There was a controversy because there was this performance in Minneapolis. I don't know if you heard about this. And the National Endowment for the Arts had given $150, $150 to this performance out of their budget of, I don't know what, $20 million or something. And of course, it became a major brouhaha. It's exactly what you would predict. But then forget all of that. That's not important. The people who argue about that, the, the sort of Jesse Helms people on one side and the Robert Maplethorpe people on the other, they, they make a point of missing the point. So here's, I think this is the point. The point is what, it's like this stuff I was reading about from the Stones. The point is what is going on? What is happening? These are spontaneous responses to a sacrificial crisis. Now get this one. This one is, it's revelatory. Quoting from the story, the Minneapolis performance by Ron Athey, a gay man and a former heroin user who is HIV positive, was called Excerpted Rights Transformation. It took place on March 5th at the Cabaret in Minneapolis. Here we have all of these little connections. The Cabaret has turned from the Berlin 1931 Joel Gray and Liza Minnelli version. We're now getting something more explicit. It was pretty explicit then. There were plenty of whips, and there's a lot of violence in the background of that one. But here we have the excerpted rights transformation. Here, here we go. As an audience of perhaps 100 people watched, Mr. Athey, with the help of three assistants, pierced his scalp with acupuncture needles, causing it to bleed, and pierced his arm with hypodermic needles. Okay, but... The thing to remember is this, this is an HIV positive. With a scalpel, Mr. Athey also inscribed ritual patterns in the back of Daryl Carlton, an artist who does not have HIV. Do you see that? Do you see what that is? It's a sacrificial ritual. It's a question of death. They draw. It's just like the American people sitting in their living room 
watching the Bronco drive down the freeway with being told that O.J. That Simpson has a gun to his head. It's exactly that kind of a drama. It's a sacrificial drama. Is he going to die? Is the, the sacred executioner going to kill him? This is terrible. I, I mean, I, I feel terrible even telling it to you. It's like Flannery O'Connor said, you know, it has to get this grotesque in a way for us to realize what it is that's going on. Okay, it's not enough, though, that this be a completely a spectator event. So, with sheets of paper towel, Mr. Athey blotted the bloody patterns and attached them to a clothesline and suspended them over the heads of the audience. Mr. Athey's work, which was performed in Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York, has its roots in Antonin Artaud's Theater of Cruelty. I talked about Artaud when we were talking about the, the Baki. Artaud is one of those cinders blown out of Nietzsche's fiery furnace, you know. And he had an effect on the art world, and here's one of the effects. Mr. Athey who has tattoos over much of his body, appears on stage as a kind of shaman who offers himself up for sacrifice, or a high priest performing a ritual exorcism. This is kind of muddled. It's, there's no exorcism involved here. It's a high priest performing a sacrifice. It's the sacred executioner. The victim is the sacred executioner, so that's not two things. Anyway, we could do it anthropological analysis of this thing. The point is, in one way, it's completely marginal. It's completely marginal. But in another way, it's a kind of early warning signal about the nature of the crisis we're in. And the next question is, can it be stopped? A friend of mine sent me a newspaper article from Minnesota, Minneapolis Star Tribune, entitled, Pity the Small City That Tries to Curb MTV. I'll be as quick as I can. Churches in this little town, Sleepy Eye, Minnesota. Churches, community outcry, said we've got to do something about MTV. The city council decided to cancel its contract for MTV through the cable company and have a contract instead for another music program which was just less offensive, but by the same company, same parent company, but another music program. Word got out and the media went wild because this is censorship. The news station, they're quoting from the article, news station set down in the little town by helicopter with TV cameras and reporters. Predictably, quote, sleepy-eyed teens were incensed. High school junior John DeBeetle, 17, defended MTV cartoon characters Beavis and Butthead, who've been shown lighting matches to aerosol spray, masturbating in front of TV, spitting in reception bowls, uh, punch bowls, and mooning who, whoever will watch. Without citing these examples, however, he said, I don't think there's a, any way in the world you, that show could be a problem. Uh, Chris Braun, 16-year-old junior, said, MTV is our portal to the outside world. I went to Dante and looked it up. It's a porthole to Circle 7 of the Inferno. Um, but the story. Elsie uh, Crin, 17, said, I love Snoopy Doggy Dog but failed to mention that Dog is rapper and indicted felon Calvin Brodus, whose video Doggy Style shows him having sex in his girlfriend's bed and fleeing when her father comes home. Nietzsche, by the way, Nietzsche knew 
that the Dionysian revolution would either happen via music or it would not happen. He gave a mighty effort to thematizing it philosophically. He philosophized with a hammer. But I think he understood that the philosophical expression of it would continue to be morally offensive enough so that if it was going to really conquer the world, it would have to do so on the strength of its music and not on the strength of its moral reason or its philosophical reason. And he was absolutely prophetic. So the cry went up that censorship uh, was robbing these children of their music. The senior vice president of MTV, Carol Robinson, dismissed the brouhaha by saying, we're responsible programmers. And now I'm quoting from the journalist now. She did not, however, refer to the anti-Christian, anti-parent, anti-police, and anti-authority messages that play regularly on MTV, nor did she clarify whether she meant videos still playing, such as Pearl Jam's Jeremy, about a kid who blows away his classmates with an automatic weapon. And she did not include as, quote, responsible programming, Aerosmith's Living on the Edge, that features a young movie star, Edward Furlong, carrying a gun to school in his book bag and stealing a car for a joyride. She added in what has become MTV's mantra wherever attacked that the whole thing was a classic generational gap issue, if it's an issue at all, nothing more than that. This journalist predicts there'll be more public service, quote-unquote, public service spots uh, condemning censorship on MTV. And then for her final paragraph is this, and see, see if it fits. When the kids go back to school this fall, we also predict that social studies teachers with roots in the 60s will prepare, quote, group discussions and, quote, debates on censorship of rock and roll. Then if parents try to remove MTV in their homes, these well-coached kids will be able to scorch them with their brainwashing. Now, that's pretty, that's not exactly objective journalism. And I think one has to see the plight of teacher, too. She's talking about social studies teachers who do. If there's no moral premise that one can appeal to, if morality is really your opinion and my opinion, what's a, what's a public school teacher to do? To what can one appeal? To say something is right or not right. Somebody else says, well, that's, I don't share that moral premise. And what's the response to that? See, we live in a world where, well, that's your opinion. Everybody's entitled to one approach to the question. And at the academic level, that issue comes into focus as people object to what some call, there are all kinds of polysyllabic terms for it, hegemonic discourse. We must do away with hegemonic discourse. Well, these social studies teachers having, you know, trying to teach in an environment where the hegemonic discourse has disappeared, have no alternative short of just tossing and turning all night, realizing the moral complicity that's involved. They have no alternative but to pick as, as the moral problem censorship because it's the only one on which all those kids are going to agree or enough of them to have some kind of consensus. But this is, the, this is an incredible world we live in. The question is, where's the man with the megaphone? The problem is, it, it will get crazy enough 
so that people will fall for any man with the megaphone. Hitler was a madman. But he got his hand on the megaphone at exactly the moment when the terror of living without some kind of hegemonic discourse had seized the German people. And he grabbed it. And it'll happen. That's the modern crisis. One of the signs of the sacrificial crisis is the mounting impatience with any criteria by comparison with which the behavior of those caught up in the crisis might be called into question. As we can now expect, every attempt to expel the biblical influence and its moral acuity will appeal for its justification to convoluted forms of the biblical moral mandate. The argument against the hegemonic discourse is that it excludes some voices and the moral concern for excluded voices is quintessentially biblical. To eliminate as unacceptably hegemonic the discourse that made us solicitous of the moral problems inherent in hegemony might easily backfire. And as a matter of fact, it is backfiring. I, I, it's clear to me that when people, this is academics mostly, but when people complain about the hegemonic discourse, they're complaining about the same thing that the teenagers in this little Minnesota town are complaining about when they say censorship. What they're complaining about is a moral premise that calls into question the, the increasingly prevalent moral ambience of modernity. Because the very act of making a moral judgment is now regarded as impolite. That's your opinion. Fine. But to impose that opinion on somebody else? And I think there's a truth to that, in a way. But then the question is, what is the hegemonic discourse? What finally do those who object to the hegemonic discourse object to? Ask yourself this. Is it that there is not enough room in our cultural discourse for the ancient and deeply held Islamic belief in the social inferiority of women? Have we marginalized this position so much that we should do away with the hegemonic discourse so we could hear more of that? Is it the idea that chastity, including virginity for the unwed, has been excluded and that those tired of the hegemonic discourse now want a vigorous reaffirmation of Christian chastity? Is that the hegemonic discourse we want to do away with? Are you kidding? What really are we sick of when we're... What really is it in the hegemonic discourse that's problematic? It's the moral sensibility born of the biblical tradition. And Nietzsche knew it, and he was at least candid enough to say it. We've got to get rid of that. If this Dionysian thing is going to roll right on, we will sooner or later have to get that rock out of the road. And the people in sleepy-eyed Minnesota are trying to get rid of MTV and they can't do it because it seems like an act of hegemony. It seems like a, an act of censorship. And the very tradition that taught us to be wary of hegemony and censorship is the one that we're trying to get rid of. And, and if we ever get rid of it, we'll, there'll be some hegemony and censorship of the first order as the people who lived under Stalin and Hitler. The current passion for eliminating the hegemonic discourse, or whatever else it's called, is a classic example of the biblical determination not to scapegoat, being turned almost exclusively against the biblical tradition that gave birth to the sentiment in the first place. It is also the biblical tradition surrendering its official and enforced hegemony, its refusal to impose itself by force. 
the realization that we can no longer rely on a hegemonic discourse is a Christian realization. It's the realization that we can no longer impose Christian moral or biblical moral principles on people. You cannot impose it. It cannot be imposed. What does that mean? You see, a lot of conservatives say, well, we just have to get back and, you know, put our foot down. Well, I agree with that. But there's something we have to be careful of. Remember, Jack said we've got to have rules and lots of them. If you introduce those kind of imposing structures in a sacrificial situation, they will be used sacrificially. The overall nature of the situation is still sacrificial. And in any event, Christianity is, is like Hamlet. We're realizing we can't use even the Christian moral premises in an imposed way, in a sacrificial way. Uh, we can't impose them anymore. So this is the last thing I wanted to say. The admonition in the New Testament to proclaim the gospel to the whole world is based on the following realizations. A, the universality of the Christian message. B, that sooner or later the whole world would have to learn that message, whatever they might call it. That message would have to become worldwide knowledge because the structures that made it possible to live without that message were dissolving. I used to think, well, the thing about go preach the gospel to the whole world, that means the alternative to that would be sitting on your duff and not doing anything. But I think we have to see it anthropologically. The alternative to that is imposing those principles. In other words, Western civilization, since Augustine, imposed them and made Western civilization out of the imposition. And now we're at a place where we can't impose them anymore. And that means there's only one way for them to be in play in the cultural order, and that is if they're proclaimed. We have, they have to be persuasively proclaimed, which is hard to imagine in the world we live in. The, the, the act of imposing it is the same thing as betraying it. We can't tolerate the hegemonic discourse because it has to be preached. It has to be accepted. It can't be imposed, which means... The injunction, the charismatic injunction in the New Testament to go and preach the gospel to the whole world is a tremendously urgent one because it's the only way it will have an effect anymore. It can't be imposed. So as Cesario Bandera says, in a sacrificial crisis, bad sacrifices, and a bad sacrifice here really is just a, 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 some kind of event which reveals its sacrificiality more than a good sacrifice can. It becomes sacrificial in a, in a morally troubling way. That's what makes it a bad sacrifice. It doesn't work. If moral misgivings are, are awakened by it, then it won't work. So Cesario is talking about a sacrificial crisis, a modern kind of sacrificial crisis, in which, quote, bad sacrifices happen, about which he says, these bad sacrifices are strange ones that are not permitted in more peaceful times, and they appear on the scene to the scandalized horror of respectable citizens who, in turn, blame such devious practices for what is happening. So they, they mistake the symptom for the cause. And so we've already talked about that, but I wanted to bring a few more items into play. 
Item number one, Time Magazine. The article is called Apologist for Murder, and it's about the uh, killing of the abortion doctor in, in Florida. And it's a, an article about the rabid anti-abortionists who have decided that uh, homicide is justified in these circumstances. Quoting from the story, says Roman Catholic priest David Trosh, perhaps the most vocal proponent of this view, by the way, Trosh has been relieved of his parish duties by the Archbishop of Mobile, Alabama. In any event, here's his position on the thing. Quote, if a person with a shotgun happened upon a scene of massive butchering of innocent children and failed to act with deadly force as quickly as possible, he would be committing a grave offense against God, end quote. Like the dropping of the water table in areas that are becoming arid, we live in a world where the opportunities for engaging in certified holy violence that is to say, violence that is morally uplifting, religiously sanctioned, and socially galvanizing are drying up at an astonishing rate. Like Bushmen trained by an unforgiving environment to find and extract tiny little reservoirs of water, we moderns scramble to locate the few remaining deposits of sacralized violence that we can find and we exploit them. And there are precious few around. In those cultures that have fallen under the biblical influence, there's only one moral premise capable of sanctioning such holy violence, namely the need to defend or avenge victims. In societies influenced by the biblical tradition, every attempt to invoke the notion of religiously righteous violence will have to insist that the violence is required in order to defend innocent or helpless victims. The most innocent and the most helpless and the most faceless are the unborn. They are therefore the most in need of being defended and the ones in whose defense some still think it possible to act violently in the name of the God revealed by Christ on the cross. The vast majority correctly see that such violence, in addition to being morally offensive purely and simply, is blasphemous inasmuch as it betrays the very religious revelation under whose mantle it claims to be acting. Unborn babies are the most defenseless and most innocent, but innocence becomes rel a relative matter shortly after birth. And yet there are still real victims out there, among them those whom Franz Fanon called the wretched of the earth. Defending them and fighting for the restoration of their dignity whenever it has been taken away from them is a worthy cause, but lacking as they do the pure innocence of the unborn. Should violence be used in their defense, any attempt to justify such violence by claiming it a Christian moral duty will face huge obstacles. Certain forms of liberation theology have squandered their moral resources precisely by trying to lend gospel legitimacy to acts of violence. By the way, it's still possible because a little bit more of an aura of respectability hangs on official acts of violence. It's still possible for uh, government-sanctioned violence to retain a little bit of its aura of respectability. It still retains a slight advantage over these non-official forms or revolutionary forms, where the revolutionary forms are achieving almost the same degree of respectability. Both are losing their ability to invoke some kind of religious sanction for what they're doing. This sort of thing 
cannot be done anymore or for very much longer. From now on, those who would try to lend moral legitimacy to acts of violence must make every effort they can to avoid appealing to Christianity for justification. For the very attempt to invoke Christian authority will raise moral misgivings that will soon rob the violence of whatever, quote, natural legitimacy it might have had, had no attempt been made to give the violence the status of Christian duty. In other words, if one would simply say in this, say, in the abortion debate, if that argument were to be made, it would be rejected by the vast majority of people, no doubt. But if the argument would be made, which this priest or former priest has made, with no reference to God or Christianity, it would be a much more plausible argument because the, we wouldn't immediately realize what a contradiction exists when that claim is made. So, so from now on, people are going to have to do the opposite of what we were able to do 500 years ago. 500 years ago, one wanted to appropriate that sanction in order to give legitimacy to it. And now we have to flee from it because the, anything, the proximity to that, to the Christian tradition will immediately cast these arguments into suspicion. The need to refrain from invoking Christian moral principles is one that puts little strain on many who today are having to justify their violence. Political and quasi-political justifications abound, however infinitely weaker they might be compared to a full-fledged religious justification of the sort that our ancestors were routinely able to invoke. I bring those items as examples of the shell game. What the shell game does is that it hides the relation between violence and generation of some kind of cultural or social consensus. Or you could say what it hides is the generativity of violence, the cultural generativity of violence. Things like the Baki of Euripides and Golding's Lord of the Flies do is that they show that generativity. They reveal it. If you grant the largest definition of these two words, there are only two genres, gospel and myth. Now, that's stating it a little too rigidly, but I think fundamentally that's, that's true. I think that the, the genres that we have, religious and cultural, literary, historical genres, can be measured in terms of whether they are concealing or revealing the role of violence and social contagion in cultural generation or the generation of cultural consensus. Goling clearly belongs on the side of the revelation. And so let's go through the middle part of the book the next few minutes and try to just take advantage of Golding's insight. One way of looking at this novel is to see that there are two political figures in the novel, Ralph and Jack, and each is trying to bring into being a cultural unit, a social unit. Jack is bringing his into being in the most conventional way. What Jack is bringing into being is the old anthropos, using all of the conventional scapegoating of sacrificial and primitive sacred uh, apparatus that brings into being the old anthropos. Ralph is trying to bring into existence a social unit that does not have a victim at its center covered over by some kind of myth. And he's at a distinct disadvantage, particularly on this island, 
because he's without any of the, the supports for such an enterprise that have been built up over the, painfully built up over the course of Western history. Western culture, of course, has not brought into being by any stretch of the imagination. The non-sacrificial culture has been tremendously sacrificial. But the, the historical movement of Western culture has been unmistakably away from that process. It has grown increasingly morally uncomfortable about using that mechanism for generating its own historical thrust and, so, and cultural power and so on. It still does it, even to this day, of course. But in the process of trying to attenuate the sacrificial aspect of this process, the West has generated institutions and moral premises and so on that have to do with tending to the plight of the victim and trying not to victimize and procedural due process and habeas corpus and et cetera, et cetera, international uh, diplomacy, all of the rest of it as ways of trying not to do that. So as I say, one way of looking at this is Jack trying to bring a culture into being, Ralph trying to bring another kind of culture into being. And Jack's form is what you might call the default position, to use computer terminology. That's the default position. Ralph, on the other hand, is trying to do something that is not something that comes naturally to us. What comes naturally to us is exactly what Jack is trying to preside over, the, the sacrificial thing. The social and, and psychological reflexes are such that they tend to produce precisely the kind of thing that's happening under Jack's leadership. So here's Ralph getting exhausted by it. Jack is becoming exhilarated by the sacrificial opportunities that seem to be falling into his lap. And Ralph, on the other hand, is exhausted. He's like Sisyphus, you know, pushing this rock up the hill, trying to get this culture into being without going that route. So in chapter 5, the narrator says, Ralph found himself understanding the wearisomeness of this life where every path was an improvisation and a considerable part of one's waking life was spent watching one's feet. And I think we have to understand it's not just that he's living in the jungle, but that he's having to be so careful about what he does. In other words, realizing that there are, if you will, sacrificial landmines everywhere, that the, pro the process can be triggered and set going by gestures that are done casually and suddenly something's out of control. We don't realize this now because we take so much for granted, but what we call manners is really precisely that. It's an elaborate, and it used to be elaborate, it's not elaborate anymore, but it used to be an elaborate social convention for keeping any kind of dangerous controversy from arising. So we shake hands, uh, we nod, we go through certain gestures, we have certain routines that we go through, we speak certain words, and so on and so forth. This is a way of assuring one another that we're not hostile and so on. Well, here's Ralph who's living outside of conventions like that, and now everything is improvisation, and he has to spend all his day watching where he's going. And that seems to me to be more and more the modern world. Yeats, in his poem, A Prayer for My Daughter, says, Where but in custom and in ceremony is innocence and beauty born? Custom and ceremony is the process whereby we're not improvising every moment and we don't have to watch every step we take. 
because it's choreographed. Custom and ceremony choreograph our lives. And the modern idea is any choreography is an unacceptable imposition on the part of some tyrannical cultural system which is limiting my freedom. Now, it's true that a lot of the customs and ceremonies that we've had have been born out of ancient sacrificial rituals. You see, we get them, and if we investigated their origins, we might have some problems with them. Meanwhile, they give us a certain order to our lives and allow us to go through without constant improvisation and without having to always watch our feet. But we have decided in the modern world, for some good reasons and for a lot of goofy ones, that we don't want to do that anymore. Every path is an improvisation that reminded me of something. I, I kind of scapegoated James Hillman earlier when we were talking about the, the Baki because of some of his latest things, which I think are tremendously silly and dangerous. But uh, some, one of his earlier ones, his early books, he, he played with the play on words, played around with the notion of every path is a pathology. And therefore, one must always be not following a path. I mean, following a path would indicate that somebody's been there before. And we must, you know, the idea that somebody's been there before would that takes all of the, the adventure and the, and the glory and grandeur out of self-discovery and so forth. Well, there you have it. That's the modern modern condition. So Yeats says, where but in custom and in ceremony is innocence and beauty born? And here's Ralph without any of that having to watch every step he takes and being becoming increasingly exhausted by the effort. At the same time, it's the text says, quote, Ralph felt a kind of affectionate reverence for the conch, even though he had fished the thing out of the lagoon himself. In other words, this conch represents, again, as a kind of a modern picture here, the conch represents the organizing principle of his cultural enterprise, the organizing tool. And he realizes, gradually comes to realize, both its significance and its complete arbitrariness. I mean, he fished the thing out of the lagoon. It's not as though it was, you know, like the sword in the stone in some Arthurian legend or something. He just got the thing out of the lagoon, and Piggy taught him how to blow it, and it's working. And and uh, but he's developing a reverence for it as though it had been the sword in the in the stone. Uh, and I feel like there's something here also about us moderns that we produce these things like the U.S. Constitution, which are marvelous things. And of course, we had a Revolutionary War and. And well, we had we had all the sacrifices we needed, and then behind it all, Jefferson said the tree of liberty has to be watered with the blood of tyrants and patriots. So you have all the sacrificial stuff. But still, we look at the Constitution, which is quite a marvelous thing. It's like the conch shell in this story. And we ought to have the same reverence for it that, that Ralph has for his conch shell. But also, Ralph's perfectly aware of the fact that he drug it up out of the lagoon and learned to, and learned to blow it. In the same way that we're conscious that, well, some of these these uh, Enlightenment geniuses sat down and wrote this thing. You know? I mean, this didn't this wasn't Moses. This what didn't come from the hand of Moses. <laughs> so anyway, the modern dilemma of having reverence for this thing, but it's not a reverence that goes back to anything other than human genius. Meanwhile, the fire has gone out. You know, they built a fire on top of the mountain to attract passing ships or planes, and Jack and his tribe of neo-pagans went off hunting and didn't keep the fire going as they said they would. So Ralph is very angry. 
and he says, the thing is, we need an assembly. He flourished the conch. He had learnt as a practical business that fundamental statements like this had to be said at least twice before everyone understood them. One had to sit, attracting all eyes to the conch, and drop words like heavy round stones among the little groups that crouched or squatted. In other words, he's learning something about custom and ceremony. He's learning that it's not just a matter of some kind of rational discourse. Now, as we'll see, the, the people in this story, you can describe them variously, but Piggy is, is really this the kind of enlightenment figure, science rationalism figure, par excellence. A Jack is the primitive, and Ralph is the political figure who tends to be rational, but as the crisis deepens, he finds himself moving in the direction of this kind of thing. That is to say, discovering that it's not just a matter of rational argument. In other words, if he says, we have to have an assembly, or thus and so is true, it's not going to work. He's begun to realize that, that these things have to be endowed with a certain weight, and that a certain kind of procedure will endow them with weight, and then they will have an effect. And so he's, in a sense, learning the limits of enlightenment rationality. So once he gets the attention of everyone and creates a kind of solemnity, he gets to the main point. And here's Ralph's main point. The fire is the most important thing on the island. And the fire is the rescue fire. It's clear to Jack and to his people and and to maybe it's becoming clear to some other people that there are lots of important things on this island. There's food, and there's shelter, and there's water, and so on and so forth, and um, roast pig, and so on. But Ralph says, no, those are important. But there's one preeminently important thing, and that is that that fire be kept going. The fire represents the appeal for rescue. And you see what it means religiously. It means that that's primary. It means that we can't get out of this situation on our own. We have to have help from outside. And this is clearly Golding's metaphor for the biblical notion of salvation. That's the most important. We can get about the business of making life better here, and we should do that but never at the expense of that, because that salvation has to come from outside. And, you know, it reminds me of the story I tell all the time of Walker Percy's funny little thing in Lost in the Cosmos where the earthlings uh, circle around a planet in a, some distant galaxy and ask, to, ask permission to land, and the people on the planet say, well, we're, we don't let just anybody in. Are you C1, C2, or C3? And they, earthlings say, we don't know what that means. Well, consciousness, consciousness 1, 2, or 3. And uh, they said, well, we don't know about those categories. So, they said, well, we'll give you a little test. The planet you left, what's it like? And they said, well, it's a, it's a burning cinder. Well, how many uh, wars were fought there, uh, you know, over the last eon or something? And they said, well, hundreds. Uh, and they asked a couple more questions. And then they said, well, you're obviously consciousness too because you have enough science to get here, but uh, you, ha you left a pretty sad situation behind. So then we have a couple of more questions about consciousness too. Have, and the most important one is, 
have you called for help? And the earthlings radio back, what do you mean call for help? <laughs> and the people on the planet say, permission denied. So that's what Ralph is saying, you know. In other words, the, the need for some kind of outside help for the human situation must be primary. And then he says, can't you see we ought to, and he hesitates a little bit, and he says we ought to die before we let that fire go out. So it's more important than individual survival. I should say that before I mention this first ritual I want to talk about, which is a spontaneous ritual, I should point out, and perhaps I've already said this, but Golding's anthropology, we can't blame Golding for not having read Girard before Girard was published, but his anthropology is a, is a little outmoded. It's, it's fairly conventional in terms of some 19th century anthropology. Uh, and the fact that it's outmoded doesn't really do serious damage to, to what he's doing here. But in, in his uh, anthropology as it emerges in the story, clearly culture begins with hunting, and hunting produces a kind of ritual reenactment of the hunt, which sometimes can get carried away and produce human victims. Okay? Well, Girard has completely reversed that process. Because if you, if you presuppose hunting as the origin of culture, which early anthropologists did, all you're doing is you're speaking of a culture that already exists. Hunting is a group activity in you know, archaic, primordial social arrangements. So, you're, so if hunting is happening, you already have a culture. So hunting doesn't bring a culture into being. Group hunting is a, is, becomes possible once some kind of cultural unit exists. How does that cultural unit exist? So I think Girard's scenario is much more plausible. And so Golding's version of it is, isn't fatal to novelistic treatment of the human dilemma. In any event, it begins with the hunt. So this ritual shows two things. It shows how spontaneous a ritual can emerge. But it also shows in a modern, something more modern, and that is that nobody is left out of it. This isn't a question of good guys and bad guys. There are no good guys and bad guys in Golding's world. He wouldn't need to write his novel if that were the case. Jack and his tribe are chasing pigs, and one runs out of the forest and happens to be running right at Ralph. And instinctively, Ralph throws a spear and hits the pig in the rump, and the rump goes squealing off. Suddenly, Ralph is seized by this wonderful thing that he's done. For a moment, he's become a hunter, and he's imbued with all of that spree de corps that the hunters had. We males, you know, there are some people that are immune to this. The people that are immune to this in the story would be Piggy because he has asthma, and he's not very athletic, and he's not very strong, and so on and so forth. And then Simon is immune to it for more profound reasons. Simon is immune to it. Simon is physically not very strong either, but he's immune to this thing for more spiritually significant reasons. But most of us males, you know, are not immune to it. Most of us males are easily intimidated by a more macho version of maleness. A more macho use of version of maleness always intimidates us. So even if we know that it's nonsense, you know, we sort of feign some kind of macho thing in its presence simply because it intimidates us so. Well, this is, this is Ralph, you know. The pig comes, he throws his spear, and suddenly he's filled with it. He's, hey, I'm, I'm one of the guys, you know. <laughs> it's like Richard Nixon always wanting to become one of the guys. 
He says, Ralph says, I hit him. The spear stuck in a bit. He felt the need of witnesses. Didn't you see me? Ralph talked on excitedly. I hit him, all right. The spear stuck in. I wounded him. He sunned himself in their new respect and felt that hunting was good after all. Well, then Jack comes up, and Jack's been wounded by the tusk of the pig, you know. And his wound now takes all the attention. Everybody looks at Jack. Oh, Jack, look at him. He's been out there, and he actually got wounded in the contest, you know. So now attention turns. And Ralph says, I hit him. I hit him with my spear. I wounded him. He tried for their attention, says the narrator. He was coming along the path, says Ralph. I threw like this. So now he's, this is the spontaneous emer emergence of the ritual. This is how I did it. See? And at that, Robert snarled at him, playing the part of the pig. Ralph entered into the play, and everybody laughed. Presently, they were all jabbing at Robert, who made mock rushes. Jack shouted, Make a ring! The circle moved in and around. Robert squealed in mock terror, then in real pain. Oh, stop it! You're hurting! The butt end of a spear fell on his back as he blundered among them. Hold him! They got hold of his arms. Ralph, carried away by the sudden thick excitement, grabbed Eric's spear and jabbed at Robert with it. This is Ralph saying, Kill him! Kill him! All at once, Robert was screaming and struggling with the strength of frenzy, and the boys were marching around him. Kill the pig! Cut his throat! Kill the pig! Bash him in! Ralph, too, was fighting to get near, to get a handful of that brown, vulnerable flesh. The desire to squeeze and hurt was overmastering. Parentheses, I think, Nietzsche. Ralph's arm came down. The heaving circle cheered and made pig-dying noises. Then they lay quiet, panting, listening to Robert's frightening snivels. He wiped his face with a dirty arm and made an effort to retrieve his status. That was a good game, said Jack. Just a game, said Ralph, uneasily. And this is this game, the sacred game. To call it a game, you see, is to cover it up. So, oh, that was just a game. That's why this thing that I talked about earlier, which is the this thing in Minneapolis where the guy gets up on stage, the HIV guy gets up on stage and carves in the back of somebody else. It's called, that's called art. See, as long as it's called art, we don't have to... We, you see, we we don't. The sacrificial nature of it isn't as troubling as it would be if we didn't have a label for it. It's a game, it's art, it's music, it's just that. You see, it's not this other thing. Well, they say one of the kids says we ought to have a drum the next time we do that. We need, if we do that again, let's have fire and a drum. That that way we'd be able to do it properly. And Ralph says, "What do you mean properly?" He says, well, I don't know, but we would need a fire and drum. And Roger, who was who played the part of the pig to his own chagrin, says, well, you'd need a real pig, too, because in the end, you would have to kill him. He says, in the end, you would have to kill him. And Jack says, well, we could use a little one. And everybody laughs. Ha, ha, ha. Little one means one of the little kids, you know, that, that take no part in real decision-making in the, in the group. Well, so that's what... That's the power of this thing. You know, it rears up and takes everybody into its scope. So Ralph got caught up in it too. Well, the, Jack and his boys go off. This is a passage I think is very important, but I want to pause on it for a second here. Ralph and Piggy and Simon, 
realize that they need to try to convene their group and for the, and they also need need to try to convene the whole group again if they can to try to keep this thing from happening that's happening which is it's splitting into Jack and his tribe and the others and it's becoming more dangerous and violent and hostile and so piggy says blow the conch ralph ralph answered in the cautious voice of one who rehearses a theorem if i blow the conch and they don't come back then we've had it now, just think about that in terms of the modern world. If I blow the conch and they don't come back, we've had it. Had it because, you see, what the conch represents, remember we talked about the, the staff in the Homeric world or the mace in the Congress, House Representatives? What the conch represents in archaic societies or even in our own is the power to enforce its edict. And for Ralph, it doesn't have that. It's an organizing thing, but it doesn't have anything behind it. Ralph and Piggy and Simon and so on are still recognized that it has some aura, and it might bring some order to the situation. So blow the conch. But Ralph is reluctant because he realizes in some ways that it's a bluff. And think about this. People said to the UN High Commission or to the Clinton administration when the Serbs started running amok, blow the conch. And no doubt in the in the inner sanctum of the Clinton administration there was a conversation that went something to this effect. If we blow the conch and they don't come, we've had it. Ralph says if, we, if I blow the conch, they don't come back, then we've had it. We'll be like animals and we'll never be rescued. And Piggy says, if you don't blow it, we'll soon be like animals anyway. So there you have it, to, to put it in a modern context. You have a new set of Nazis running all over Europe or looking like they're about to. And you, say, and you have somebody saying, would somebody please blow the conch? And then... There's this realization, if we blow it and they don't heed it, then what? Well, we can send in the Air Force. What does that mean? How, what does it involve? You see, Ralph didn't have an Air Force behind his con, and we still do. But there's something common to, to both of us, and that is that we have a strong reluctance to use it, both for practical and for moral reasons. Because we we understand that we now live in a world where it's not a solution anymore. It provides a temporary solution, which sometimes we pay for in the long run at a very high cost. So I just want to savor this. This is the modern problem. Blow the conch, but if you blow it and, no, and they don't respond, then you have further eroded the authority of the conch. And the conch is all we have. It's a social construct. Before we get too far away from Ralph getting caught up in the ritual and becoming indistinguishable from Jack and, and his tribe, let me go to this. Ralph and Piggy are talking, and Ralph says, they don't understand. Don't they understand that the most important thing is the fire? Because we have to be rescued. We can't save ourselves by ourselves. 
And he says to Piggy, Piggy, what's wrong? What makes things break up the way they do? And Piggy says, I don't know, Ralph. I expect it's him. Jack? Jack. A taboo was, was evolving around that word, too. Now, remember, Piggy is the Enlightenment figure who, if he's asked to solve the problem of evil, well, he would have to say, well, they're good guys and bad guys. The problem here is obviously Jack. Clearly, Golding wrote the story in order to prove that the problem is not Jack. Now, who is Jack in the world that Golding is, is writing for? Golding wrote this story in 1952. Who was the Jack whom everybody was blaming catastrophe in the middle of the 20th century on so that they could wash their hands of it and say, well, it was just because of some crazy bad guy? It was Hitler. A taboo was surrounding, taboo meaning it was some kind of evil incarnate was Hitler. And I have no doubt that Hitler was evil incarnate, but the point is Hitler was just this goofy little guy. The point is, the evil that Golding is trying to analyze is the evil born of social events. And when that vortex begins to, to form itself, it will always cough up some little mouthpiece who will hold the role of leader and who will say what has to be said in order for that process to unfold. I think the, the limit of a, of a kind of enlightenment analysis of what's going wrong in the world, Piggy says, oh, it must be Jack. What happened in the middle of the 20th century must have been Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or whatever. And that's true, but on the other hand, the question is, what's really going wrong here? One night, a dead pilot parachutes down onto the island. Plane shot down. He's already dead. His body lands and on the top of the mountain and and uh, the parachute hangs up in a tree, and when the wind blows, it makes this flapping noise, and the, the pilot's head drops between his knees, and it's still on the strings of the parachute. So when the wind blows, the head rears back, and it's perfect. This, by the way, is the deus ex machina of Golding's story. I think we could see this pilot as the primitive sacred, because this pilot then becomes the focus for everybody's sacred awe, the beast. But you see... If we analyze this a little bit, you realize, in a sense, Golding realized that he had to have the sacred located someplace. And he even realized, or at least his story produces, a corpse at the center of the sacred. But because his anthropology was the old-fashioned kind of anthropology, he had to drop the corpse in from outside. There is the sacred precinct. And there is a corpse at the center of the sacred precinct, but it didn't get there by falling out of the sky. It got there by people killing somebody. But it's interesting to me that the same, he, he reproduces exactly the same thing, but he has to have it deus ex machina because he, he doesn't have an understanding of how it might have been produced otherwise. He understands the sacrificial nature of a culture once it's in existence completely well, but he doesn't understand how it could be founded on such a thing. But in any event, there's this, there's this corpse, and it's the source of, of terror. Sam and Eric are supposed to be keeping the fire. They wake up. The fire's almost out. They go looking for firewood, and they see this thing, or they don't quite see it, but they partially see it. They flee down the mountain. And then there's this 
then the, there's this meeting which is about going up to find out. And so Ralph and Jack uh, go up the mountain to see about this. And they stumble upon, it's at, at, at night, there's moonlight, and when they see and hear the flapping of the parachute and they see this dark figure, they too are terrified and they run down the mountain. So now there really is this sacred precinct on top of the mountain that terrifies them. So there's a, meet, there's a meeting, what to do. Now this is where I want to start coming to a conclusion and showing what Simon represents. Then Simon stood up and took the conch from Piggy, who was so astonished that he remained on his feet because Simon's so afraid of talking in assembly. Ralph looked up at Simon. Simon, what is it this time? A half sound of jeering ran around the circle and Simon shrank from it. I thought there might be something to do. Something we... And then he kind of trails off. Again, the pressure of the assembly took his voice away. He sought for help and sympathy uh, and chose Piggy. He turned half toward him, clutching the conch to his brown chest. I think we ought to climb the mountain. The circle shivered with dread. Simon broke off and turned to Piggy, who was looking up at him with an expression of derisive incomprehension. What's the good of climbing up to this here beast when Ralph and the other two couldn't do nothing, said Piggy. Simon whispered his answer. What else is there to do? To me, this is a tremendous thing. This is Western realism. This is, look, let's find out. Let's actually find out. Instead of sitting down here and turning into primitives again and organizing our whole system on the fear of this thing, let's go find out. At its best, that's what the West is all about. Sometimes at its worst, it's what it's all about. But still, that's what it's all about. Let's find out. They're sitting around the fire later on, and Ralph asks, where's Simon? Piggy says, I don't know. You don't think he's climbing the mountain, do you? He might be. He's cracked. I think Simon's climbing the mountain. You could see it as, uh, most of all, I think, as a temptation in the wilderness. This is all we hear at first about Simon's trip up the mountain. He knelt down, and the arrow of the sun fell on him. Presently he was thirsty, and then very thirsty, but he continued to sit. This is like Jesus being hungry in the wilderness. Down below, of course, Jack and his group are preparing to kill a pig and have a feast and win over all the other people that are on Ralph's side. And they kill the pig in the following way. I just have to draw out a couple of things here. A little, they find a group of pigs. A little apart from the rest, sunk in deep maternal bliss, lay the largest sow of the lot, nursing piglet. Emphasis on the feminine. The sow, say, they throw a spear. The sow staggered away ahead of them, bleeding and mad, and the hunters followed, wedded to her in lust. What I want to call attention to is the way in which sexuality and violence are blurred so powerfully in this story. Excited by the long chase and the dropped blood, she's chased by the boy, she, dra she staggered into an open space. Here, struck down by the heat, the south fell and the hunters hurled themselves at her 
This dreadful eruption from an unknown world made her frantic. She squealed and bucked, and the air was full of sweat and noise and blood and terror. Jack was on top of the sow, stabbing downward with his knife. Roger found a lodgment for his point and began to push till he was leaning with his whole weight. The spear moved forward inch by inch, and the terrified squealing became a high-pitched scream. Then Jack found the throat, and the hot blood spurted over his hands. The sow collapsed under them, and they were heavy and fulfilled upon her. Here again, Golding has seen the way in which at the heart of this thing, sexuality and violence become indistinguishable. And this is what Nietzsche recognized when he realized, having listened to Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, that there was no way that we could override the, the aversion, uh, uh, Christian aversion to, to the sacrifices that we need to perform. There was no way we could override them without two things. Number one, dismantling all sexual morality. And number two, to do it via music. That was Nietzsche's great insight. He says, in a way, to make a long story short, he says, that's the only hope we have of overriding Christianity, is to dismantle all the moral restraints on sexuality and to crank up the, the Dionysian soundtrack. And then, watch what happens. And one of the signs that it's happening is that the distinction between sexuality and violence begins to disappear. And then there's this other thing, you know, in the things I've tried to point out, it's very strong in the Baki, and it's also very strong in the cabaret. It's not much of it here. You would think there would be more of it here, but there's one little reference to what I've been calling gender bending, which is the other distinction that evaporates, the distinction between male and female. Roger began to withdraw his spear, and the boys noticed it for the first time. Robert stabilized the thing in a phrase which was received uproariously. He said, right up her ass. This time, Robert and Maurice acted the two parts. And Maurice's acting the pig's efforts to avoid the advancing spear was so funny that the boys cried with laughter. Now, had Golding not made the connection between violence and sexuality so unmistakable in the previous thing, we might say, well, this is, there's no sexual. We might overlook the sexual innuendo here, but it's perfect. Once you realize what Golding is onto, you can't mistake it here. So he, too, has some little hint of the gender bending that happens at the, at, when you get near the heart of that sacrificial vortex. All of those things start to manifest themselves. So, Jack says, we'll put the head on a stick because we have to offer the beast some token, placate the, the primitive sacred. So he says, sharpen a stick at both ends, put one in the ground, put the pig's head on top, and that will be our shrine to the primitive sacred. And they did that. The silence accepted the gift, quoting, the silence accepted the gift and awed them. The head remained there, dim-eyed, grinning faintly, blood blackening between the teeth. All at once, they were running away as fast as they could through the forest toward the open beach. This is the sacred precinct and the profane precinct. The whole business of religion will now be to keep the sacred in its place, running terrified away from it. Everybody wants to go towards the beach. Now that the sacred is in place, run towards the beach. 
And the move towards the beach and all of that represents myth. It's the concealing of all of what just happened, the violence and all of the craziness. They run away. The question is, is anybody moving toward it? And the answer is yes, Simon. Simon's going up the mountain. The next we see Simon, he's sitting there staring at this pig on a stick. And he's doing the work, the real work. He says, well, we just have to go and find out, don't we? And now he's in the presence of this shrine to the primitive sacred. And the contest is about to begin. Go back, child, the head said silently. Simon looked up, gazed at the sky. Now, remember that from the Baki? When Agave has the head of Pentheus in her hand, and old Cadmus says, okay, just look up at the sky. Get your bearings. And this is like Jesus in the wilderness. When the devil tempts Jesus in the wilderness, he always answers by quoting scripture. In other words, he always answers with reference to the transcendent. He does not try to do it on his own moral strength. I think that's tremendously important here. You see, if Simon had been an enlightenment figure, he would have just said, well, I'm, I can figure this out. I'm just going to look at this thing and I'm going to figure it out. And meanwhile, the spell would have been woven right there in front of him, probably. I mean, if the history of that enterprise is any indication. But he doesn't do that. He looks up. And there's that gesture of looking heavenward that I think is very important little part of this story. Simon lowered his head, carefully keeping his eyes shut. He's, he understands that how powerful these influences can be. And we think, oh, they're not. They're, they can have no influence on us, you know. Tiresias says, no amount of Bacchic revels can corrupt an honest woman. And we Americans say, oh, it's just MTV, it's just music, you see. But not Simon. He understands how powerful these things can be. So even when he lowers his head from looking skyward or heavenward, he, he doesn't open his eyes right away. And then when he does, he kind of, he kind of shelters them with his hand. The pile of guts was a black blob of flies that buzzed like a saw. And in front of Simon, the Lord of Flies hung on his stick and grinned. So Cadmus later on says to Agave, okay, now look at the, what's in your, look at the head. You say, what do you see? And this is just what Simon is doing, exactly the same thing. And there's a dialogue. This is where it's, I think, the temptation of the wilderness. It's the dialogue between Simon and the Lord of the Flies. You are a silly little boy, the Lord of the Flies said. Just an ignorant, silly little boy. Simon moved his swollen tongue but said nothing. Don't you agree, said the Lord of the Flies. Aren't you just a silly little boy? Simon answered him in the same silent voice. Well then, said the Lord of the Flies, you'd better run off and play with the others. What are you doing out here all alone? Aren't you afraid of me? There isn't anyone to help you, only me, and I'm the beast. Simon's mouth labored and brought forth audible words. Pig's head on a stick. Okay, Simon! You see that? That's the breakthrough. That's what, that's what Western history is all about, right there. I mean, it's unbelievable. 
pig's head on a stick. That's the demythologizing breakthrough. You know, that's it. I mean, it's tremendous. Unfortunately, Simon is going to become the victim of the next sacrifice. And the last thing in that little section is this. Simon begins to slip into an epileptic fit and lose consciousness. And as he does so, he hears the Lord of Flies speaking in the voice of a schoolmaster. This has gone quite far enough. My poor misguided child, do you think you know better than I do? So it's very ominous, and Simon will soon be the sacrificial victim. But the tremendous breakthrough here is when he says, pig's head on a stick. That's the beginning of the end of the primitive sacred. And it always reminds me of that thing of Gerard's where he says, we didn't stop burning witches because we invented science. We invented science because we stopped burning witches. Is this willingness to go up the mountain and find out. Let's find out. Let's make sure. Let's see if it's really so. That finally breaks the grip of the primitive sacred. So I would just savor that victory and think of it as our benchmark in a way. And it's, by the way, it's a victory on the part of someone who seems, who doesn't even seem to be a player in the big cultural events that are taking place. It's this quiet breakthrough where the myth and the primitive sacrality is undermined by a simple observation about what's real. This is what Milton understood so well. What Jesus discovers in the wilderness confrontation with Satan is the satanic nature of the powers of this world. And what he does on the cross is that he breaks the power. And so Milton saw that they were one and the same thing. They were overlaid. So for Milton, as soon as Jesus renounces the last of Satan's temptations, the victory of the cross is assured. 